Mouse to Mouse, Episode 12. Is this the way? Sleeping in an air-conditioned environment is something that for a British person, unused to such nocturnal privations, poses, to say the least, something of a challenge. This challenge is increased when one is attempting to do so in the same room as what can only be described as a pair of world-class fidgets, i.e. our children. The air conditioner at the Best Western Plus Rio Grande in Albuquerque added an entirely new level of complexity to the equation as it appeared to have two settings, too hot and too loud. Actually, this is not altogether fair as it did have a third oscillating option by which I mean that half an hour of too hot was followed by a short sharp blast of Boeing 747 landing in the middle of the room which did bring a brief respite from option one until it rapidly segued back into an unbearable level of option two, and then the cycle began again. The upshot of all this was that our New Mexican night slumbers could have been better, and the whole family could have been approaching our fourth day on the road a little fresher. Nevertheless, we set off on the road to Texas, tired but in good spirits, and with a couple of notable Albuquerque attractions on our list. As we set off, I was enthusiastically telling Sarah about my plan that we would begin the day with a trip on the Sandia Peak Tramway, the nation's largest aerial tram and the third longest single-span cable car in the world. My childlike vacillations were met with a rather muted and thoughtful pause before my good lady wife pointed out that she really isn't a fan of heights. Tyler had, as we have already discussed, developed a distaste for anything that remotely resembled an upper and I had felt distinctly uneasy This is a tactful, wifely code for the fact that I had been terrified and frankly a bit of a wuss on our one visit to the London Eye. In fact, against all probability, the only member of our travelling party who might actually enjoy being hauled 10,378 feet up to the crest of the Sandia Mountains was the usually panophobic Annabelle. With this in mind, we ultimately concluded that George Mallory's famous justification of climbing Everest, because it's there really wasn't going to fly in this context. After all, as much as this trip might be a voyage of discovery, the vacation aspect of the whole thing does rather suggest that there should be at least an element of delight in there somewhere, and having three quarters of the family develop PTSD didn't seem the best way to achieve that goal. This meant a bit of swift route replanning to take in another attraction that I had noticed in the odd and quirky category during my research, but had set aside because I hadn't thought we'd have time to visit. Something of an off-kilter wonderland, by the name of Tinkertown. As roadside attractions go, Tinkertown rather defies explanation. Its own official literature describes the place as a museum, but somehow that doesn't really seem to suffice for a place that is at once a ramshackle funhouse, an extensive exhibit of folk art, and one singular individual's lasting legacy. The whole place began in 1962 as the hobby of Aberdeen, North Dakota-born artist and woodcarver Ross Ward, who, by his own account, had been set on his path by the glamour and graphic style of the Ringling Brothers Circus when it visited his hometown. Never forgetting this formative event, Ward later fulfilled many a young boy's dream by joining a string of circuses and travelling carnivals, designing and painting their banners, while at the same time tinkering with and creating the hobby that he described as his folk art village. When he settled with his wife and two children in a cabin on the road to Sandia Crest, Ward simply continued with his hobby, and over the best part of 40 years, he carved thousands of figures and then went on to create the buildings and scenes in which to place them. 
Over the years, these tableaux have become larger, more animated and ever more detailed, eventually expanding to fill 22 rooms, which themselves were constructed and expanded in an ad hoc manner that might suggest their creator was allergic to, or at the very least deeply offended by, parallel lines. Eventually, in 1983, Ross and his second wife Carla decided to open his obsession to the public. And since then, despite his diagnosis with Alzheimer's and eventual death in 1998, the family have continued to welcome tens of thousands of guests to experience this truly one-of-a-kind attraction. Welcomed really is the right word for the way you feel in this place, as when you wander around it, there is a genuine sense that you are a guest rather than a customer and a feeling that rather than being directed through some kind of retrospective of the artist's work, each new set of eyes is actually discovering the deepest corners and recesses of his remarkably creative mind. Although, of course, the nature of the attraction is very different, I felt a similar sense of overseeing presence while stumbling around Tinkertown to the one that I had experienced when imagining Walt on the streets of Disneyland. Indeed, it struck me that had his career not taken him in the direction it did, particularly given his own fondness for building miniatures, it was entirely conceivable that Walt Disney's own innate creative urges may well have found expression in just such a homemade roadside attraction. After all, wasn't that just what Disneyland was, but on a much larger scale? Whether or not this may have happened, we will of course never know, but it was clear to me that the fascination and sheer delight that I now saw in my children's faces at Tinkertown was a mirror of the same mask they had worn back in Anaheim. There was certainly something here of a particularly American kind of eccentricity that was shared by the two men, albeit expressed in very different ways, that had played no small part in the creation of the America that I was seeking and had now started to find by the roadside. Tinkertown had most decidedly been a big hit with the entire family, but now it was time to head back out onto Route 66 to take in some of those iconic little roadside towns that I had spent so much of my life thinking about of late. The first of the places we decided to have a look at was Santa Rosa, possibly most famous as the home of the Blue Hole, an 80-foot deep swimming hole that is much beloved by divers. We had considered the possibility of stopping off for a dip in the hole, but as the thought of attempting to retrieve a non-swimming tiler from the aqueous centre of the earth was not an appealing one, we thought better of it, and decided instead just to have a look around the town. What we found was, as we came to realise along our journey, entirely typical of the life of so many settlements on the Mother Road, namely that there was very little of it. It was certainly not difficult to imagine the romance and glamour that this old strip must have embodied in the 40s and 50s, at least in part because travelling along it now is very much like driving back into those bygone decades. So much of the architecture of the period is still there, but the glitz and neon has largely been replaced by dust and dereliction. The tale told in Pixar's Cars of a town left to wither on the vine by the introduction of an interstate system that privileged the destination over the journey is recast again and again as you take the highway that's the best in either direction. The faded glory of Santa Rosa eventually gave way to Tucumcari, where we were struck with a sudden insatiable desire for ice cream. No problem, I reasoned before we happened upon the sort of charmingly, really real retro ice cream parlour that my extensive imagined knowledge of this land had furnished me with. Sure enough, we did see a sign for such a place, but when we drove up, it lived up to all my expectations in every regard, apart from one. It definitely ticked the space-age 50s Airstream styling box, sat there like something out of a Jetsons cartoon, 
But alas, that family's high-tech utopia was characteristic of a future with its feet firmly in the past. The very place where our ice cream parlour, now shuttered and gently falling to bits, had left its days as a functioning business. In the end, we had to settle for some mass-produced and pre-packaged ice cream bars from a rather depressing-looking Kmart on the outskirts of town, which I suppose acted as a fitting metaphor for the corporate takeover of society. As we pushed on towards Texas, we began to notice a series of roadside billboards proclaiming the legend of a place by the name of Klein's Corners, and by the frequency and increasing level of hyperbole, we assumed that we were about to witness something akin to a cross between the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and Paris Hilton's address book. Eventually, after the best part of 50 miles, we were amazed to discover that the wandering question, a real tail centre of over 30,000 feet, looked remarkably like a relatively bog-standard motorway service station. I confess that, as we sailed by, ever so slightly disappointed, I did consider the possibility that we were making a terrible mistake, and that within the walls of this remarkable establishment, we may have discovered any number of miracles that could have altered the entire course of our existence, or alternatively, we could have picked up a very reasonably priced key ring and a packet of jerky. Either way, the experience did remind me that while there is little doubt that America has a considerable gift for building excitement, not every showman is Walt Disney. Once past this veritable eighth wonder of the world, we pressed on into our fifth state, Texas, in search of a true roadside icon in a field just outside Amarillo. It is important to state for my American readers that it is virtually an article of law that the mere mention of that name to any British person will be followed by a rousing chorus of Is this the way to Amarillo? Often in a decidedly pub singer style. This song, Written and performed by American pop superstar Neil Sedaka was a minor hit in America. It reached number 44 in the Billboard charts in 1977. But across mainland Europe, where the name exercised far more exotic imaginings, the version recorded by Yorkshire warbler Tony Christie, six years before Neil Sedaka's single, was a smash, reaching number one in many countries, although it peaked at number 18 in the UK. The song, and indeed the singer, found a whole new post-millennium audience when Lancashire comedian Peter Kay adopted it for use in his sitcom Phoenix Nights and eventually fronted a video for a charity release in 2005 that resulted in it occupying the UK number one spot for seven weeks and selling in excess of 1.2 million copies. I mention this primarily to underline the way that, often, pieces of American popular culture that may domestically have been seen as relatively insignificant can have a massive impact on the way that outsiders looking in relate to the country. So it was then that, happily singing along with Tony Christie's Shalalas, we found ourselves pulling over, along with scores of other cars, onto a grassy verge and skipping over a fence into a decidedly muddy field to take in the Cadillac Ranch. The Cadillac Ranch is, of course, not a ranch at all, but a public art installation consisting of 10 Cadillacs supposedly displaying the evolution of the tail fin in models from 1949 to 1963, which were half buried by three members of the Amp Farm, Chip Lord, Hudson Marquez and Doug Michaels, an avant-garde art collective out of San Francisco in 1974. The decaying autos are carefully aligned at an angle that supposedly mirrors that of the Great Pyramid of Giza, and they have themselves been on something of a road trip, as their original site was in a wheat field a couple of miles to the west of their current home, to which they were quietly relocated in 1997 in order to place it a little further away from the edges of that ever-expanding city. 
What it is about this odd but extremely appealing homage to that most American of conveyances that motivates people to travel huge distances to look at and deface with spray cans, I couldn't really tell. I can, however, say that stood there in the late afternoon Texas sun, the Brooks family were completely immersed in its magic, and that seeing such a familiar sight for real, with my son on my shoulders, as Annabelle and Sarah, possibly one of the world's least likely graffiti gangs, gleefully sprayed it with the contents of one of the countless discarded spray cans, is a memory that I will cherish forever. The graffiti itself is now actively encouraged. It is a remarkable piece of living art that is constantly being replenished, refashioned and occasionally removed when the cars are repainted for special occasions, such as their 2012 rainbow makeover in honour of gay pride, or the more sombre flat black paint job adopted in 2003 to mark the death of their joint creator Doug Michaels. It is interesting to note that the Hampton Inn hotel chain, along with some other organisations, engaged in a series of high-profile Route 66 icon renovations as part of the Route 66 Corridor Preservation Act in 1999, which included repainting the famous Cadillacs to their original colours. This spring clean lasted a grand total of 24 hours before they and the plaque that commemorated it were submerged in a new layer of graffiti. As I have previously noted, much of the trip along 66 was like an extended voyage through the world of Disney's Pixar's cars. And this was no exception, with the Amp Farms Ranch providing the inspiration for the Cadillac range, featured and credited in the movie, and displayed prominently as the backdrop for Cars Land in DCA. Once again, it seems that the spirit of John Lasseter, and by association that of his inspiration, Walt Disney, is woven into the very fabric of this road, and thus our trip. I wonder if we could strip off enough layers of paint, would we find his signature somewhere in the cow field just outside Amarillo? <laughs>